This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to Global Tennessee. I'm Pat Ryan. Today we're going to talk about the World Affairs Councils of America National Conference that was recently held in Washington, D.C., and a number of the World Affairs Council uh, Tennessee folks were there and participated, and uh, we have a, a lot to share with you from the uh, terrific speakers uh, and uh, think tank visits and other things that the World Affairs Council Conference uh, brings to uh, members who, who attend. And with me today to talk about uh, the conference uh, are Jim Shepard, uh, Chairman of uh, the Board of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and Logan Monday, uh, Program and Development Manager at the World Affairs Council. Uh, welcome, uh, Jim and Logan. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. Great to be here. It's uh, it's good to uh, to be back on the, on the podcast, and uh, we thank our listeners for uh, for tuning in. Uh, the uh, the World Affairs Councils of America, which is sort of an umbrella organization to the ninety councils around the country that all have a common purpose of helping people understand what's going on in the world, uh, as as we do here in, in Nashville with the Tennessee Council, uh, our mission to uh, to bring the world to the community and especially to our schools. Uh, but uh, WACA, uh, WACA, is, uh, is the organization that uh, brings us uh, uh, benefits around the network of councils, including the National Conference, but they also uh, host the annual Academic WorldQuest competition for high schools uh, around the country, and, and uh, our council uh, participates in that, and we have a championship match in uh, February and then bring the winning students and teacher to Washington for the national competition. We also visit uh, embassies and think tanks. So if you're a teacher or a parent or a student uh, in high school and are interested in the Academic WorldQuest competition, uh, check out tnwac.org, our website, or uh, give us a call at 615-460-6011, and we'll fill you in more on WorldQuest. But back to uh, the World Affairs Council uh, National Conference. Uh, this year, the topic was uh, Braving the New World Order, and uh, we uh, were up there for three days. The, the first day is really for the councils uh, to get together and, and share lessons learned and, and networking, but it uh, kicks off uh, with a, a keynote uh, address at the opening banquet on, on day one, and then uh, day two are uh, speakers and uh, panels and keynote addresses on uh, topics, uh, hot topics uh, around the world, uh, national security issues, new trends, uh, emerging issues. Uh, then on the third day, there's uh, another uh, a couple of speakers, and then all of the participants in the council uh, spread out to uh, five different think tanks around Washington, which uh, really for me was uh, was a great experience. All, all of the members we had from the Tennessee World Affairs Council each went to a different uh, think tank, and these were places like uh, Brookings, uh, American Enterprise Institute, the Center for New American Security, uh, the Center for Strategic International Studies, and uh, the McCain Institute. So we had a chance to, to talk with uh, people who were involved in, uh, in policy making and decision making and uh, people who are in and out of government to get uh, their insights on, on what's, uh, what's going on in the world. 
before we, we jump into uh, specific areas that uh, were discussed, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to go around the table, and Jim and Logan are going to share their insights of uh, their favorite uh, panels and topics, and we'll, uh, we'll dive a little bit into each of those. Uh, but uh, obviously, uh, in our uh, 20 or so minute podcast, we can't get uh, that deep into everything. But what we'd like to do is share with you our impressions of some of the conversations, uh, pass along the names of, of some of the, uh, the speakers and panelists and thought leaders uh, with the idea that if you're interested in, in this or that topic, uh, you can uh, hit Mr. Google for information about the speaker and uh, look for articles they've written, that kind of thing. And we'll have a couple of book recommendations. Some of them were, uh, some of the speakers were there uh, selling books, and and uh, all of that was uh, interesting stuff. Uh, first impressions of, uh, of of your couple of days in in Washington, Jim. What would you think? Well, <clears throat> this was my second conference, and uh, again, I walked away with a, uh, a very changed understanding of the topics that we were getting into. We uh, I found the, inter- the speakers to be extremely interesting and the, the depth that we can get into in the discussions in just a short hour typically is truly outstanding. Logan, uh, any takeaways for you from the, from the top? Yeah, I have to uh, mirror what Jim's talking about. Everybody up there was really uh, detailed about what their, their expertise was in and how it uh, affects um, U.S. foreign policy and people back here in Tennessee with uh, some business and economics and dealing with China. It was interesting to, to learn about. Well, I'm going to uh, just uh, peel back the onion here a little bit and talk about the opening keynote address. And again, the conference uh, theme was Braving the New World Order. And uh, the opening uh, banquet, uh, and, and I tell you, if, if if you get the chance to to go to one of these conferences, uh, besides terrific content and speakers and, and getting to network with uh, like-minded people from around the, the, the country, uh, the setting is the Mayflower Hotel in Washington on Connecticut Avenue, a couple of blocks north of uh, the White House, uh, a spectacular facility, uh, a, a classical uh, uh, old-style hotel. Uh, the food was great. Uh, the, you know, the, the uh, amenities were great. So it's, uh, it's just a fun uh, couple of days in Washington to, to go and, and have that kind of experience. But the opening, uh, the opening address was... Uh, led by uh, Michelle Flournoy, who's a former Undersecretary of Defense. And uh, the, the topic that the, they were co- covering uh, was a book um, that uh, uh, looked at the, the last couple of years of U.S. foreign policy, and it's called uh, Empty Throne, America's uh, Abdication of Global Leadership. And it was written by Evo Dalder and James Lindsay uh, from the Chicago Council on global affairs, that's Evo Dalder, and he's a former permanent representative to NATO. Uh, so he's a, a very uh, a sharp guy with a lot of insights and perspectives that uh, it's it's good to hear firsthand. Uh, you'll see him on podcasts, and they do videos at the Chicago Council. And the Chicago Council is, uh, is one of the world affairs councils around the country, even though they have some different nomenclature to their name. So they're, they're in the network of uh, world affairs councils. And uh, Evo, Ambassador Dalder, is, uh, is the, the head of the Chicago Council, in addition to being a former rep to NATO. And James Lindsay is from the Council on Foreign Relations. So the, uh, the two of them wrote, a, wrote this book, Empty Throne, in, in which they, uh, they took a look at uh, uh, the Trump administration. It was kind of an even-handed portrayal of uh, ups and downs 
in uh, foreign policy. They, it, it was an unvarnished appraisal of the Trump administration's um, efforts to change the direction of U.S. foreign policy in terms of uh, shifting from multilateralism in, in a number of areas. Uh, for example, trade, uh, we've seen the, uh, the immediate cancellation of the, uh, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the, uh, the trading arrangement that was negotiated over a number of years uh, with the Asian partners. Uh, that went to the wayside, and, and uh, the administration is looking at, at doing more in terms of bilateral uh, trade uh, countries working, uh, the United States working one-on-one -on -one with, with some of these partners and, and forsaking uh, multilateral arrangements. Uh, and uh, areas like uh, NATO and talking uh, in tough terms with our NATO allies about the, the durability of, of, uh, of NATO and uh, the, the uh, uh, section of the, the North Atlantic Charter, which deals with uh, each NATO country coming to the defense of the other. Uh, there was some doubt uh, cast in, in uh, whether America would be re re a reliable partner uh, in, in some cases. So uh, uh, Dalder and Lindsay uh, talked uh, about the, the first two years of the Trump administration and uh, their, their book, Empty Throne, is, uh, is worth a read. And any, uh, any uh, observations that uh, you guys had from that conversation about the, the direction of, of uh, the Trump administration? Logan, did, did any of that uh, jump out at you as, as insightful? Well, I think listening to those who have worked at the highest level and see the change of direction that's going on um, for our foreign policy, it was uh, interesting to hear that they kind of had to take a step back and reevaluate what um, type of policy had been done before with what is going on now and how to um, work within that new policy and what direction we wanted to go in. Um, so it was just really unique to be able to listen to them who have worked previous administrations, um, Republican or Democrat, and come in to say, you know, we could really kind of have to reevaluate how we're going forward right now and to talk about the direction we're going in and who we're, who we're working with in the future. Uh, just as a, maybe a counterpoint to, to what we talked about, <clears throat> reflecting upon our uh, talk with Senator Corker two weeks ago, he, as most of you know, is retiring or uh, soon to be leaving chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, in his presentation to us, he made a comment that uh, we should be careful to separate the rhetoric from the, the true changes that are occurring. And in, in his perspective, the, the rhetoric is much louder than the actual changes we've been seeing in, in some of our areas of foreign policy. So, you know, as anything else, it's not black or white. It's not yes or no. You have to take a balanced perspective on everything, and, and I, I thought it was kind of interesting to hear both what uh, we heard last week in Washington and what Senator Corker had mentioned to us the week before. That's a, a good point. Uh, we, we also heard the similar uh, conversations uh, among people who were evaluating uh, the, the, the perspective shared in that opening keynote. But uh, there's, there's also the, the concern that a lot of people have uh, that our foreign allies, uh, we may internally uh, adopt that view. I'm, I'm skeptical myself that, that uh, things haven't in reality changed. Uh, you, you can put your finger on any number of things. 
We're no longer in the Paris Climate Accord. We've pulled out of the TPP. We've canceled the Joint uh, Comprehensive Plan of Action on the Iran nuclear deal. We've done a whole host of things that have really rocked the boat of international relations and, and the tradition of uh, 70 years of uh, what's, what's called uh, euphemistically the liberal international order that the U.S. chiefly built after World War II um, to, uh, to put some structure uh, into the post-war recovery and, and build an enduring net international um, panoply of organizations, uh, financial, uh, national security, and, and otherwise uh, that would ensure international stability and, and keep the peace. Um, so I, I, I take your point about what uh, Senator Corker shared with us, but I'll, I'll, I'll remain skeptical on that count. Ed, well, go ahead, Logan. Yeah, one thing I want to say to that is that uh, when we did pull out of the Paris Accord, uh, how many, 110 cities, U.S. cities immediately um, came within the next two weeks and said that they would maintain the emissions requirements for the Accord. Right. And they would continue it. Um, right. Just a couple of states followed in with that as well. And you're talking about pulling out of the Iran agreement. Um, you know, we saw that in the past midterms a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people who are from different parts of the world ran for office and won uh, here in the States. And so it seems that the, the reactions that have been going on uh, from pulling out of those uh, agreements has, has really kind of forced middle America to, if they hadn't before, prior, uh, to take responsibility um, in their own area about what is going on. And, they might not be focusing on everything that's doing with the huge agreements that we kind of pulled out of, but they're taking responsibility and accountability for their own uh, districts and locations and cities and municipalities. Right. And uh, I think that's a great reaction to. But in, in that case, the, the 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 local uh, municipalities and states they they have the ability to continue to do the things they're doing. Everybody uh, has has a stake in that. But if you look at an agreement like the uh, the JICPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, we, we pulled out of that, and it was still in force. It was it was not a U.S.-only agreement. It was signed by the P5 plus one, uh, the permanent members of the uh, U.N. Security Council, plus the, uh, the EU and Germany. And the European allies wanted to keep that in place, even though the U.S. had pulled out. Uh, unfortunately, the, the U.S., with its economic power, uh, was able to tell the Europeans that uh, there would be second-tier sanctions on European companies that continue to do business with, uh, with Iran. And just on uh, November 4th, the U.S. started enforcing uh, sanctions in an effort to uh, kill the oil exports from Iran. So a lot of these things, um, you, you know, the, the rest of the world can, can work around, uh, but the U.S., uh, for example, the TPP, um, some countries in, in the Pacific are, are picking up where, where we jumped off, including China, which was not in the TPP, but they'll now take advantage uh, from, from that. So I, I think it's, uh, to call it a mixed bag would be kind, but I, I think on, on net, the, the first two years, in, from my perspective of the Trump administration, have been largely uh, successful in uh, disengaging America from its traditional alliances, agreements, uh, institutional arrangements, and uh, the other things that have benefited us immensely over the years. Any thoughts, Jim? No, again, I think everything has to be kept in perspective and in balance. Uh, it was just, a, it was to me, it, it really was a striking difference of perspective that Senator Corker was articulating versus what we uh, what we heard last week in Washington.
Yeah, for sure. Another uh, panel that uh, that I found impressive uh, and I enjoyed hearing was uh, called Shaping a Stronger Transatlantic Relationship, which is uh, definitely related to uh, the conversation about the uh, the first few years of the Trump administration in the opening keynote, and that uh, that panel was uh, was led by Vice Minister uh, Andreas Michaelis, uh, a State Secretary from uh, from Germany, um, and uh, Evelyn Farkas from the Atlantic Council. She's a, uh, a a a think tanker, but also has been in and out of government. Uh, does a lot of uh, writing on uh, on national security issues. And uh, you'll frequently see her as a, a pundit on uh, a number of uh, cable news uh, broadcasts and so forth. And Robert Kagan, who's uh, a very uh, well-known author and uh, strategic thinker. He's at the Brookings uh, Institute. And he just wrote a book called The Jungle Grows Back, America and Our Imperiled World. And uh, he probably took uh, Empty Thrones uh, thesis and, and uh, went much further in terms of, of his perspective on, uh, on where the United States was in relation with this new, new liberal order. And we've gone around the table here a little bit, but if, if you guys have uh, something that you picked up on, uh, on that, uh, that panel, uh, Logan, any of that? Uh... I think the interesting that I took from that, there were a couple of questions uh, from the audience that went to uh, uh, the Honorable uh, Andreas Michaelis from Germany asking about, um, you know, lessons from history and kind of thinking if uh, we don't have a strong transatlantic relationship, then uh, will the large rise of populism and nationalism in Europe uh, continue down the same path that happened uh, previously after World War One, 100 years ago, and then in the 20s, which led to the rise of Nazi Germany. And um, I was surprised, but he candidly came back and said, no, I think it's a different time, we're in a different era that we have different factors going into, we're more globally connected, states are more connected than they were back then, and that uh, the, the problem that we have is, isn't that um, populism is not occurring, but instead that people need to be listened to within their countries about the issues of immigration, about the issues of economic uh, opportunities, the, the massive debts that some countries have in Europe, and that if they're not, then you're gonna have major reactions to people being ignored, which he said was part of the reason why some of the far right was coming up uh, over the, you know, with the populist movements. And I hadn't heard that before, and I found that to be very interesting and um, surprisingly candid from someone that I kind of assumed uh, would not uh, speak his mind in that way. That's uh, good observations. One, one thing I picked up from the vice minister uh, was, he uh, was very candid about uh, his reaction, especially for someone in government, about the uh, what the Trump administration means to people in in Europe, in particular Germany, and we've seen in uh, recent weeks uh, the announcement by uh, Chancellor Merkel that she was uh, not going to seek uh, office again and was uh, going to step down from uh, her position of, as uh, leader of the party after some uh, electoral setbacks. So it, it was uh, it was refreshing to hear hear his appraisal. And uh, we'll, we'll commend uh, um, to your attention that uh, the World Affairs Councils of America will have these uh, panels uh, up on uh, their website. Uh, they were all videoed. And in our newsletter at the, World, at the Tennessee World Affairs Council, we'll, we'll uh, have links to those once they're posted. 
Um, let me remind everybody that this is the Global Tennessee Podcast brought to you by the Tennessee World Affairs Council in association with the Belmont University Center for International Business and the National Cha- Area Chamber of Commerce International Business Council. I'm Pat Ryan, and I'm here with Jim Shepard, Chairman of the Tennessee World Affairs Council Board, and Logan Monday, Program and Development Manager from the World Affairs Council. We're, um, uh, I apologize for dominating on the time there. I want to turn to you guys to, to pick out uh, a panel or two that uh, piqued your interest. Jim, uh, I think you were uh, interested in uh, a panel with a, an author. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, thanks, Pat. Uh, the t- title of it was a, based on a book called Like War, and uh, the, the premise is based upon the weaponization of social media. It's a book written by Peter Singer and uh, Emerson Brooking, and Peter uh, joined and, and made the, uh, the lead in the presentation to the group. And, and in the book and in the discussion with our group, Peter was, was going through examples of what we're experiencing right now with uh, social media, the internet, and politics all coming together uh, and, and redefining uh, what war is all about. It's, it's, a, it's a totally different perspective than we've ever seen. A cu- couple of examples that he uh, identified for us was the very effective use of ISIS, of Twitter and the Internet, as they progress through uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And yeah, that was, that was a pretty impressive story about how the, uh, the ISIS combatants, when they were heading towards Baghdad, were uh, tweeting and Instagramming. Uh, propaganda that uh, caused the Iraqi army, which was eight times larger, to sort of melt into the background. And that's what uh, that, that really led to the downfall of Mosul. Because right, I mean the numbers were definitely not in favor of ISIS. No, for sure. And the all the propaganda and everything people were reading uh, spooked big time the the army, and uh, they deserted their posts. Right. So as a consequence, Mosul fell. So. So there's an example of uh, a war being fought with uh, social media that we hadn't seen in the past. Yeah. Very new, very different. And I think the title, Like War, is not uh, to enjoy war, but like as in a like on Facebook or liking in, in social media that somebody clicks on like, and all of a sudden uh, people who are, are spreading uh, information that uh, may be inaccurate, uh, other people are, are clicking on it and based on the popularity of a particular post, uh, some some bad information can influence uh, people's actions. Another uh, another observation they had in the book and, and talked a little bit about was how China is using a smartphone app to police the thoughts of their 1.4 billion citizens with smartphones. Right. And when we, we get to a situation like that, is, is social media really exposing the truth or burying it? If everything you see has already been filtered by the government, uh, what is true? That's a, that raises a lot of very, very important questions. Yeah, and I think the impact is uh, not just on uh, spreading falsehoods, but uh, even if you have accurate information, using social media to influence behavior, uh, true or false or, or otherwise. So it's an interesting phenomenon to follow. Yeah, one thing I will say is just a, a simple point from that was there are over 2 billion people that are on Facebook alone. Facebook would be the largest country in the world with that way, in that if it was a, a formal country, 
and there are there's no international agreement on the roadblocks or prevention of inaccurate information being given throughout Facebook's network by separate by different countries. There's right. no there's no form of international agreement on what we should do and how we should disseminate information and et cetera. And we're we're just beginning to see some of the government officials here in our country and the states start to realize that that might be something we need to do. Uh, so I thought that that's the whole, what is truth? What is, you know, what, how does it, one government has a very defined definition of what it is and another government does not. So how, how do you begin to even operate on that platform with two billion people already on it? And, and this fellow, Peter Singer, who was on the panel was, was a very uh, astute uh, individual, well, well uh, positioned uh, to, uh, to address these issues. So uh, take, take a look uh, on, uh, on your favorite bookseller uh, for Like War, Peter Singer, The Weaponization of Social Media. Uh, let's move, move on. We're, uh, we're close on time here. Logan, what, uh, what jumped out at you among the panels? And uh, you know, there, were, uh, there were some great panels, U.S.-China Trade, mm-hmm. uh, Global Fight for Women's Rights, Trends mm-hmm. in Space Policy, Digital Resilience mm-hmm. by a fellow named Ray Rothrock. Uh, Red Seal talking about uh, the the uh, hacking and manipulation of uh, computer networks. So any anything in there? Uh... They were all they were all really good and very interesting. But one was just out of this world, and that was uh, right out of orbit, <laughs> trends in space policy. Um, and obviously, as a uh, sci-fi fan, bada bing, bada bing, bada bing. Obviously, as a sci-fi fan, I really enjoyed um, the the notion of uh, the exploration of space and etc. But what these four uh, women were discussing, uh, one was from the DOD, another was uh, the uh, office director for the Secure World Foundation, another was the advocacy lead for the uh, Harris Corporation Space and Intelligence Systems, and then the last was the senior research associate for international uh, and security studies. So these women all knew every, all the ins and outs of what they were talking about from every different angle, and they all said the same thing, that the biggest problem that we have for space and going into space, and this includes uh, SpaceX, ULA, um, all of them, uh, was space debris. Basically, it's just space junk because of the speeds of inertia that go around. A, a, a bolt that gets put off a satellite can whip around and three years later go through the International Space Station and destroy it. And so they were talking about how do we, within uh, those different organizations like the DOD, work in conjunction with um, a, the Russian counterparts with a commercial um, counterpart with uh, SpaceX or ULA, and how do you formalize and centralize uh, basically cleaning up lower space orbits to make it safe and passable for satellites not only to be there, but to continue to have rockets go up and down. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a global common like the, the high seas, and it's largely unmanaged in an international fashion, and what's really uh, troublesome or worrisome is the fact that in coming years there's going to be a proliferation of tens of thousands of new satellites, these nanotechnology mm-hmm. mini satellites that mm-hmm. will be low Earth orbit internet platforms and, and other uh, other purposes. So um, the the junk is up there is, is just increasing exponentially. Yeah, and those those lower satellites will be great because they might possibly be able to provide free Wi-Fi for everyone on Earth which would be a wonderful benefit to sure. humanity, but then there's security concerns associated with that. And then there's, of course, if you have all the satellites up there, who's keeping track of right. all the satellites? All, all the word free, I'm not sure that that, yeah. that was in anybody's uh, vocabulary. Some that hope. <laughs> uh, 
I'd hope for it, but it just seems that um, we're on the cusp of so many different things right now in 2018, and uh, having some uh, some knowledge about the, what's going on is what we're trying to do here at the Tennessee City Legal Affairs Council, and so if you're listening in, uh, join us in at uh, Tennessee, tnwac.org backslash membership. We'd love to have you come in and be a part of the conversation and go forward with us. Uh, again, we're the uh, Global Tennessee Podcast from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We're happy to have you here as listeners. Uh, the second segment of today's podcast will be an interview that we did with uh, Bart Adesh. He's the Asian Development Bank North American representative, and he's going to talk about uh, the development banks around the world, the Asia-Pacific environment, uh, economic environment, uh, trade agreements uh, approved and not and uh, it, it'll be a fascinating interview, so, so stay tuned for that. Uh, before we go, uh, gentlemen, any last observations about the National Conference of the World Affairs Councils of America? Well, I guess my only uh, observation might be an encouragement to, to anybody out there who's a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council to consider attending one of the future conferences. They're held every year in November in Washington, D.C., and it will certainly stimulate some thoughts in your mind as you, you leave the conference. And hopefully you'll be able to share some of that knowledge with uh, your friends and family when you return home. Yeah, with just a little bit of planning, you can get the DC and back round trip one, one way for 220 bucks, And you can see not only the conference, but all the great museums that are there in the city. DC gets a, gets a really negative rap with the politics, and sometimes it's, it's certainly justified. But there are a great many benefits for those who... We all pay our taxes, and uh, you get to see all these museums for free. And lastly, I just want to say in honor of Stanley Excelsior. Okay. Well, uh, Jim, Logan, thanks for uh, participating in the conference and uh, participating in our, our roundtable here at the Global Tennessee Podcast. Uh, we will be back with another roundtable in, in our next episode. Uh, for our listeners, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And then we'll be back with uh, Mr. Bart Adesh, the North American representative of the Asian Development Bank. And our interview is going to discuss uh, trade, the function of development banks around the world, how the international economic order is bolstered by these development banks, and uh, what that means to uh, Tennesseans in terms of uh, international trade and, uh, and the effect on the, your prosperity and national security. So uh, stay tuned. This is Global Tennessee. Brought to you by the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We'll be right back. This is Global Tennessee. News, analysis, and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome back to Global Tennessee. Today in our conversation section, we uh, are going to share with you an interview with uh, Bart Edesh, uh, the representative of the North American office of the Asian Development Bank. Uh, Bart has served as the Asian Development Bank's uh, North American rep since 2017. In this capacity, he mobilizes financing for ADB's developing member countries, shares development knowledge and experience, establishes and deepens partnerships with public, private, and nonprofit organizations in North America, and helps to raise public awareness of ADB in Canada and the United States. 
a little bit about uh, the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, which is a multilateral development financial institution, uh, one of the uh, numerous uh, international development banks uh, that uh, help bring financial resources to some of the, the uh, toughest problems in uh, the developing world. Uh, the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, envisions a prosperous, inclusive, resilient, and sustainable Asia and the Pacific while sustaining its efforts to eradicate extreme poverty in the region. Despite the region's many successes, it remains home to a large share of the world's poor, 330 million people living on less than $1.90 a day and 1.24 billion people on less than $3.20 a day. ADB, the uh, Asian Development Bank, in partnership with member governments, independent specialists, and other financial institutions, is focused on delivering projects in developing member countries that create economic and development impact. Uh, we, when we spoke with uh, Bart Edesh, uh, we covered a number of topics, including uh, describing what the bank was about, how it worked, but we also talked about trade and uh, U.S. economic interest in the Pacific. So I think you'll find this uh, of great interest. And now Mr. Bart Edesh, the representative of the North American office of the ADB. Welcome back to Global Tennessee. In today's conversation, we talk with Bart Edesh. Uh, Bart represents the North American office of the Asian Development Bank, the ADB and he's in Nashville today to talk to our business community. Uh, Bart, our lis listeners can see your bio and information about the ADB on our website, tnwac.org, but for the uninitiated, can you uh, briefly describe the uh, Asian Development Bank and uh, what you do at, uh, at the ADB? Of course, Pat, and thank you for the opportunity to join this podcast today. Uh, Global Tennessee is doing a great job of bringing the world to Tennessee and uh, representing the Asian Development Bank today. I'm happy to share a bit about what our institution does. Uh, ADB is a multilateral development bank. It is owned by 67 governments and territories, including the U.S., which is the joint uh, co-shareholder um, uh, in terms of uh, shares owned, uh, 15 to 16 percent. Uh, and what ADB does is provide financing technical assistance and capacity development support to developing countries in Asia Pacific, particularly in areas of infrastructure like energy, transport, and water. Uh, our overarching mission has been to alleviate poverty. Uh, we have a newly adopted uh, long-term strategy to 2030 uh, that emphasizes our contribution to Asia's resiliency, prosperity, um, sustainability, uh, and that in a nutshell is what we do. And the North American office uh, serves as a jump off point for engaging with the U.S. and Canadian governments, as well as the business communities, including here in Tennessee. And, and the ADB is uh, just one of a number of uh, multilateral development banks. Can you uh, give us a sense of uh, how that's structured uh, to meet the development needs uh, around the world? Sure. Over the last several decades, uh, countries have come together to, to create these banks to provide financing for essential physical and, and social infrastructure. So we've got ADB in the Asia-Pacific region. There is the Inter-American Development Bank based in Washington that, that serves countries in Latin America. Uh, the newer European Bank for Reconstruction Development, working with mostly countries from the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, but now into Africa. Um, we also have the African Development Bank uh, serving that large continent. 
And uh, when when you uh, spoke at the National Area Chamber of Commerce uh, International Business Council today, uh, you talked about uh, America's uh, interest in uh, the Asia Pacific region, the the economics, the regional development. Uh, you mentioned the involvement of uh, the United States uh, in the ADB. Uh, can you give us a, a sense of what uh, the United States' role as an economic player in the Asia-Pacific uh, region plays out? Well, I mean, the U.S. Uh, has a long-standing influence in the Asia-Pacific region. It is one of the largest trading partners uh, and investors in, in many uh, Asian and Pacific countries. Uh, in terms of ADB specifically, uh, there are about 150 American citizens working for ADB, like myself, um, and and our organization, our bank, um, is contrib contributing about $20 billion in finance each year, uh, again, mostly for physical infrastructure, but also to help countries with reform in the finance sector, uh, uh, build up uh, and expand accessibility to education, to health, uh, to social protection. Uh, but coming back to the general uh, influence of the U.S. in, in Asia-Pacific, it, it has been extremely strong the last many decades, uh, and that's reinforced by um, both bilateral and multilateral agreements with uh, a number of partners. Just on, on this note, uh, looking at the case of Tennessee, um, uh, there are billions of dollars of, of Asian investment, particularly Japanese investment, uh, in Tennessee, uh, creating uh, large numbers of, of, of jobs directly and indirectly. And, and on the flip side, you have uh, Tennessee companies, over 7,000, that are exporting uh, to Asian countries, including some of the big ones, um, like China, uh, big economies, uh, Singapore, Japan, Korea, but also quite a number of other uh, states. Uh, to be sure, and, and uh, as, as we've mentioned here from time to time, uh, there's uh, uh, a large investment in, in Tennessee from Asian countries, uh, Japan, Korea, and China among the top 10 uh, that uh, contribute to uh, 37 billion dollars in, uh, in their direct investment, uh, capital investment in Tennessee, and uh, hundreds of jobs, uh, thousands of jobs, and in, in hundreds of uh, business establishments. Uh, so we we recognize the foreign direct investment uh, as important to Tennessee, but we also recognize the the uh, export uh, market. Uh, it's uh, uh, certainly a uh, sustaining. Uh, element in the Tennessee economy, $33 billion in uh, commodities exported from Tennessee. Now, we've uh, we've seen a lot of discussion of uh, trade and investment uh, in the news lately, especially the trade uh, situation. Can you uh, summarize uh, in, in the, the time we have here uh, what the, uh, the trade environment uh, is the, from your perspective uh, in the Asia-Pacific region vis-a-vis -vis the United States? Yeah, so we saw at the early stages of the current U.S. administration deciding to pull out of uh, discussions, negotiations on the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. Uh, this was a decision based on uh, perceived interest of, of the U.S. Uh, at the same time, Asian and other partners, including Canada, Mexico, and Chile, decided to forge ahead uh, and create an 11 country uh, TPP called now the Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so even as the U.S. in this regard um, has, has pulled back a bit, uh, you see Asian and Pacific countries forging ahead uh, with, with trade agreements. Uh, there is a, a larger uh, agreement that would involve more countries in, in Asia and the Pacific called the RCEP. 
regional comprehensive economic partnership going forward um, with, without the United States. So there is, there is a perception in some Asian countries that uh, uh, the U.S. Is, is, is pulling back, is not quite as uh, engaged in the region, uh, and, and they worry about that. Uh, they would like continued U.S. engagement um, on, a more, on a more positive front. Um, you, you do continue to have uh, major U.S. investment and in exports to Asia. Uh, as far as uh, what's been dominating the news lately uh, in terms of uh, tariffs and response to tariffs, uh, say between the U.S. and China, um, this, this is a concerning point. I think uh, all actors would like to see a resolution of the differences between uh, these two massive economies um, uh, because there are um, impacts um, that uh, should it uh, continue and, and more tariffs be applied from one side or the other, this could have a lot of impact on, on value chains, on supply chains, uh, and affect uh, quite a number of other countries, not only, um, say, the U.S. And, and China. So one hopes for a resolution of differences, a meeting of the minds, if you will. Uh, it has focused attention of businesses in Tennessee and around the U.S. Uh, on, on what is happening. Uh, and also uh, reminds us of um, the importance of, of trade uh, to the well-being of, of many families and, and to uh, lots, of, lots of jobs and success of companies, both small and large in this state. Um, I'd like to remind, uh, take a second to remind our listeners that uh, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast uh, produced by the World Affairs Council. We're talking today with uh, Bart Edesh, North American representative of the Asian Development Bank. He's in Nashville talking with business people about Asia-Pacific uh, economic integration. Uh, Bart, you, you uh, mentioned the, uh, the TPP, which uh, the U.S. Uh, participated in the negotiations, but then after the Trump administration took over, uh, decided uh, not to participate in that, and uh, and the vacuum that uh, that left, and and now the CPTPP and, and other regional agreements. What uh, what implications beyond economics uh, do these various uh, actions by the United States have on on the region? You mentioned that. Uh, some countries thought that the United States was not being as engaged as they would hope to be, but uh, specifically in the national security arena, what's your sense of uh, the implications of cancellation of uh, U.S. multilateral agreements and, and other activities in the region? Well, our institution, Asian Development Bank, uh, doesn't really engage on the national security side of things, so perhaps not the best to comment uh, in this space, but what I could say more generally is um, with uh, the perception of the U.S. pulling back um, in one or another field, uh, that leaves a, a, a void, if you will. And uh, Asia is moving forward, and individual countries, including large ones with a lot of influence, are filling that, filling that void. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about uh, the positive influences of America on the world, uh, whether it be democratic principles or... Uh, fair rules of, of, of trade and investment and uh, rule of law. Um, these, are, these are influences that have had a, a profound and positive impact uh, in Asian countries. And one, one would like to see uh, these positive influences, particularly, uh, again, uh, in the trade investment area, keeping uh, a level playing field and, and, and having generally accepted rules of the game um, one would like to see the U.S. continue to be um, actively involved. Uh, one of the things I, I would mention is um, 
you know, there's this massive need for infrastructure investment uh, across Asia. ADB has estimated between 2016 and 2030, some 26 trillion, that's T, trillion dollars uh, worth of investment is required in, for example, the power and transport and water sectors. And right now, Asia is falling well short of this goal and depends too heavily on public sector resources. And so there is uh, an opportunity for uh, American firms, um, particularly those engaged in infrastructure, um, to, to, be, to be involved and, and to, uh, to find business opportunities uh, in, in various parts of Asia. Uh, and if the U.S. is, is, is not filling that void, uh, along with others, then then uh, you can expect that uh, major regional actors um, will do that instead. Well, that's certainly uh, an important point in uh, connecting the dots between what's going on uh, in the Asian Pacific region. And uh, we'll uh, remind our listeners that the ADB looks at uh, quite a, a large uh, slice of the world stretching as far west as Armenia and, and Central Asia across to uh, East Asia, Japan, uh, Southeast Asia, and even countries on uh, the west, the eastern side of, of the Pacific as, as far as members. Uh, and, and connecting those dots with the uh, Tennessee business, we talked about the, uh, the investment and, and trade here, but certainly the uh, infrastructure development projects uh, are are giving bang for the buck to uh, U.S. investment and uh, participation in the ADB. Any uh, any last thoughts on what uh, the ADB's activities mean for uh, Tennessee and uh, the United States in terms of the investment in uh, in the ADB and and what its activities are? Absolutely, Pat. Uh, look, the the volunteer state has a stake in ADB, and that may sound a little bit of a stretch, but no, it's it, it's true. It's uh, um, part of the United States, which is the leading shareholder, which is a founding shareholder in ADB. Uh, Tennesseans have, have a stake um, in this in this uh, development bank, uh, and the success of ADB can contribute directly to the success of, of Tennessee business. Uh, and this is through our work to to uh, uh, help economies in, in developing countries develop further, to to have the roads to transport products. Uh, to to develop their communications, to 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 meet the basic needs of, of citizens, uh, supplying uh, water, electricity, and as these economies grow, um, then those are economies of middle class uh, people who need, who want uh, quality products, uh, including from from the U.S., including from Tennessee. So, uh, our efforts to to promote development uh, in Asia can lead to a more prosperous Asia region, which in turn. Uh, can contribute to exports and investment opportunities for Tennessee business. Well, this is all important to Tennesseans, and we appreciate uh, your time today, Bart, coming to uh, Nashville to talk to uh, the community, the business people here, and participate in the Global Tennessee podcast. Thank you, Pat. It's been a great, a great pleasure. We've been talking with uh, Bart Edesh, the North American representative of the Asian Development Bank. This is Global Tennessee. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org podcast for more information.